first of all, when you're studying cybersecurity, because the cyber threat landscape is so embedded within the geopolitical landscape, we cannot just stick to computer science and the technical analysis of malware. We really need to acknowledge the social political discourses. We need to see what country is hacking who and what sort of geopolitical tensions there are, because that usually will indicate a lot about attribution as well, because political context is very much embedded within cyber attribution. Cyber threat intelligence, advanced persistent threats, attribution in cyberspace. These are some of the most eminent issues states and corporate actors face. What are these threats and concerns really about? In conversation with Camille Bigot, we begin uncovering some of these issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I am your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode explores the fascinating yet sometimes dangerous uh, realm of cyber, and we're taking a closer look at advanced persistent threats and attribution in cyberspace. For this conversation, I'm glad to be joined by Camille Bigot, an expert, professional in the field, and a rising researcher. Hi, Camille. Many thanks for joining in. Hi, Petros. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, just a few words about Camille. Uh, she is a cyber threat intelligence manager at Deloitte in London, who has spent the last three years also as an analyst at both Security Alliance and Control Risks before joining in Deloitte, mostly working for, in general, large financial organizations and other projects. She is also undertaking a part-time PhD in computer science at King's College London, applying data-driven approaches based on the MITRE framework to malware attribution. She also holds the CREST Registered Threat Intelligence Accreditation. She has a rather eclectic academic background, having read international relations and social anthropology at St. Andrews, as well as holding an MPhil in gender studies and an MPhil in criminology from the University of Cambridge. So, Camille, it's a very interesting profile, especially uh, noting the transition that you've taken, having a background in international relations, social anthropology, then gender studies and criminology uh, at Cambridge. So I was wondering if you'd like to elaborate a bit how, what inspired how you have developed an interest in this uh, uh, field and what essentially motivated you to pursue this more technical path instead? Absolutely, Petros. Uh, so as you said, it's a rather eclectic background. Um, so initially, uh, between my master's in Cambridge in gender studies and in criminology, I worked at Interpol for a whole summer. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, both of my masters there were also specialized in counterterrorism. The one in gender studies uh, examined counterterrorism within a gendered lens, and the one in criminology applied more data-driven approaches and criminological theory uh, to terrorism in Southeast Asia specifically. Um, so initially, when I moved to London, I wanted to work in intelligence or security. That is why I did the second MPhil in criminology. But by chance, I fell into cyber threat intelligence. Um, at first, I didn't know anything about computers. If you told me what CPU was, I would be absolutely clueless. Um, <laughs> but uh, the people at work at Control Risk uh, took the time to really like train me and explain a lot of things to me. And I 
of course, spent a lot of time in my personal time to read a lot about computer science, uh, cybersecurity, cyber threat intelligence, to really understand uh, that field, which is relatively complicated and quite technical. But I find that really challenging um, in a really like positive intellectual way. Uh, so I decided to pursue it. And after about a year and a half, two years in the field, um, I felt quite passionate about a project uh, on malware attribution specifically. And uh, therefore I applied to a part-time PhD in computer science, which I think, which I thought also would hone my technical skills even further. Uh, and by chance I, I got in. And so now I'm really happy to, to do both. And it's a job where I learned a, a new thing every day and absolutely adore it. And it combines both a strategic international relations outlook and also a technical side of it where you're examining a malware and different techniques used uh, in intrusion. So it's fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating. And I wouldn't say that you got in by chance. I mean, you have a <laughs> solid background and you're actually one of the very few people who can actually break it down for policymakers at this point to try and look at uh, cyberspace from both an academic and a technical side and at the same time you are hope you're definitely developing this very niche technique in breaking down and explaining this more to policymakers because at the end of the day that's what it is about like when when you are when certain people lack the more technical stuff they they they, they sometimes are you know unfortunately not able to comprehend the complicated process behind what what happens in the cyberspace so definitely this this, this is a very useful skill set and this is what i hope to highlight in this episode as well to try and break down a couple of things when it comes to advanced persistent threats malwares essentially so just to kick it off um, <laughs> with, the, with the very first question, how would you define a malware? What, what does it do? How different is it from other digital and online threats that we face today? So that's a great question. Um, I think there is a lot of misunderstanding and uh, erroneous discourses around malware because in all these movies, you know, you type uh, on your computer three times. It's like, oh, I've hacked the NSA. That is not actually what happens in, uh, you know, cyber in the cyber threat landscape. Also, often the word has been interchanged with virus, which is also something in cyber threat intelligence we really don't like. Uh, the proper term is definitely malware. And there are very, very different types of malware out there. Uh, so malware is sort of a malicious software that is used to infect uh, computers and eventually sometimes networks of either organization or individuals um, to be able to achieve different goals. These may be financial, these may be for espionage purposes, these may also be disruptive. So the different types of malware, I'm gonna highlight a few in this podcast. So for example, there are botnets, which is usually like uh, when a malware infects lots of different kinds of devices, and these can be used, for example, to conduct uh, distributed denial of service attacks, uh, which are basically shutting down a website, for example. Uh, then there are ransomware, which is something that's been growing in the last few years, which you might have heard of. Uh, which are uh, malware that encrypts your files and then asks for a ransom. Uh, these days also we have the big game hunting groups, uh, which are new ransomware groups uh, since 2019 pioneered by uh, the Maze group, which is a group that is uh, operating the Maze ransomware, where they're performing double to triple extortion, meaning they will exfiltrate your data first, then they will encrypt it, 
If you don't pay the ransom, they will threaten to release your data. So these groups, um, as much as like technically they're moderately to like be like moderately able compared to nation state groups, they are very impactful and usually their campaigns are quite lucrative. Then there are the classic banking Trojans, which often are just there to basically capture any kind of banking credentials. Then there are the crypto miners, which are used to mine a cryptocurrency, you know, that these days cryptocurrency has boomed and is a big thing out there. Then there is spyware, usually used by, for instance, nation states, which is used to monitor what you're doing on your computer, even on your phone. There's mobile spyware, for instance. Then there are rats, remote access Trojans, which are programs that provide the capability to allow to do covert civilians and the ability to gain unauthorized access to a victim's PC or other device remotely, uh, usually for the collection of information on there. Uh, and then there are adware, which are like uh, quite uh, benign, I would say, uh, malware, which are used to basically uh, sort of pop your device with tons of ads. Uh, and usually, hopefully, like you'll click on something and then they'll get money from clickbait, basically. Often these malwares can have also like different functionalities. Uh, so an example of this is TrickBot, which is one of the most popular Trojan, which has a modular infrastructure where, for instance, they have a screen locker module, they have a key logging module, they have a password grabber, a reverse proxy, etc. So usually some people consider keylogger a different types of malware, but I would consider it more like a, a module that a malware can have. And a malware usually is responsible for an intrusion. So what is an intrusion? So to define an intrusion, I will bring it back to the kill chain model. Uh, so the kill chain originates from the military originally, uh, but, it, and it, but it was developed in the cyberspace uh, in 2011 by Lockheed Martin to model cyber threat behaviors. It has seven different phases, which is uh, what malware, what, what an operator of a malware would usually go through. So first there is the reconnaissance phase, uh, where basically you collect information about the target. Then there's the weaponization phase where basically you usually do resource development. That's where you would build your malware, for example, your tools or acquire your tools, depending on your capability. Uh, then there is the delivery stage. So delivery stage for a malware, for example, can it can be varied, but one of the most common one is spear phishing or phishing, uh, which is when you, we send you a malicious email, for instance, with a malicious link or malicious attachment. And when you click on it, uh, that's when uh, sort of the malware gets delivered on your computer. Often malware is definitely uh, successful because of human error. It's very or so it's either you clicked on something wrong or, for instance, you didn't patch uh, your computer appropriately. So then uh, operators can, for instance, uh, use an exploit because your, I don't know, your public facing applications uh, run a really old version, for example. So this is all part of human error. It's um, quite, you need to be very sophisticated to be able to deliver malware in other ways, uh, if that makes sense. For instance, if we're thinking about supply chain compromise, uh, which is another way to deliver malware, uh, I think you guys might have heard of the SolarWinds attack. Basically, like a third-party software uh, delivers a malicious file that's very sophisticated. That's what was Russian, mm -hmm. and that's often something. <laughs> but that's often something like you know, um, you're thinking of targeting sort of, of something that's delivered at a wider range. Uh, that's when malware kind of gets to your device by default without 
necessarily human error being there, except for maybe at the initial phase of the third party supplier. But anyway, so that's the delivery stage. Then there's usually the exploitation phase, which is usually found in the more traditional malware intrusions, where for instance, you're delivering a malicious Microsoft document, which uses specific exploits to deliver the malware. Then there is the installation phase. Then the command and control phase, where basically the operator will create a communication between the infected device and uh, their servers uh, that they're sort of operating called C2 servers uh, in cyber threat intelligence, cybersecurity. And then finally, there is the big phase, which is actions on objective, which is quite a stage that is uh, pretty vague by nature, and it depends on sort of who you are and what you want. So it could be, for instance, uh, to collect money, like you're infecting a device to collect banking credentials, to then do financial fraud. If you're a nation state actor, it could be to collect sensitive political information, for instance. So there are various uh, sort of stages within that last stage of the kill chain, which is actions on objective. Sort of to sort of summarize, so malware is like a malicious software used to infect targets, uh, sort of usually going through an intrusion process during a cyber attack. So yeah, I hope that was clear enough. <laughs> it was quite clear, actually. Yeah, thank you so much for breaking it down so uh, in such a great detail. And you know, like because a lot of times is uh, very this information becomes a bit too technical for uh, people to understand, and it's mm -hmm. great to be able to see how it can be explained uh, properly in uh, much clearer as well. Would you say that there's a trend nowadays for malware to be to be sent out or to be set up by state or non-state actors specifically? Like, is it like because you've also mentioned a Russian malware as well at some point? And for do you do you feel there's like a, a country like a state-related trend? So do actual states uh, tend to develop that, or is it mostly non-state actors? So um, that brings it uh, well into the second thing I wanted to talk about, which is advanced persistent threats, which are the actors that basically operate these malware. And very much malware depends on who is operating it. Um, and so that depends also on their intent, but also their capability is very sort of important uh, because when it comes to malware, there are three different kinds of malware as well that you can find in the wild. There is a custom malware, which means like the person has built that kind of malware specifically for their uh, attacks. There's open source malware and tools as well. So these days, you know, being a script kitty uh, in 2021 is not the same as being a script kitty in 2011, for instance, because there's so much out there that's available, even very sort of sophisticated malware that you can find just on open source online. And then there is uh, what we call malware as a service, uh, which is usually sold uh, sort of the deep and dark web, which is uh, malware operators offering to usually cyber criminals or even sometimes nation states. Uh, one of the big uh, nation state provider of malware as a service, for example, is the NSO group in Israel, which builds pretty sophisticated uh, malware and then sells it to other nation states, which don't have the capacity to create custom malware. So uh, I think those three things can also tell you how capable an actor is. So often the people that can actually build their own custom malware is uh, quite sophisticated nation states or sophisticated OCG, organized criminal groups. 
And in terms of trends, you were saying of, of these types of malware, I think it really depends uh, what we're talking about. I'm just going to give you the example again of the big game hunting ransomware groups within the cyber criminal realm. Uh, that's a big trend that we've been seeing since 2019, where ransomware groups are using quite sophisticated ransomware variants. Uh, usually they do initial access via uh, exploitation of public facing application. This is what often it's SMEs, so small and medium enterprises, which are uh, sort of primarily targeted uh, or the public sector as well, because these two sectors are known to not perhaps do as much diligent patching and diligent and sort of operate diligent uh, security hygiene as really big, large corporations because of, I don't know, budget cuts, et cetera. And these ransomware groups perform double to triple extortions. So I was saying they both exfiltrate and also encrypt files to be able to put more pressure on the victim. But also uh, these days they've been using also the threat of a DDoS attack as well uh, to put even more pressure. And what is quite fascinating about it, about it is like a lot of people actually end up paying those ransoms. So it's something that obviously works. Yeah. And I guess there's, uh, it's, it's also sometimes very difficult to track down and understand the actual source, right? Like how this whole thing actually originates, which actually brings me to the, my very next question, attribution. And I think that's a very interesting and perhaps a very core discussion that we're about to have. Uh, because, you know, attribution in the cyber realm is essentially a useful process in tracking down and identifying potential perpetrators or any other exploits that we see. But how do you understand attribution and how has it been done? How has it been implemented before? Are there any limits to attribution? I personally understand that this process is important, but why do you feel that attribution is important? Absolutely. So thank you so much for asking this question, because attribution is a big part of what I'm doing as part of my PhD. So I have a lot of thoughts about attribution within the cyber threat realm. So attribution, I think, can be defined as determining the identity or location of an attacker or an attacker's intermediary. So it's desirable because identifying attackers can deter future attacks. It can improve your defense techniques as well if you know who's targeting you then you can know what mitigation controls to apply. You can interrupt attacks in progress as well. And if you're sort of um, a government entity also, that can have a lot of repercussion within the geopolitical landscape if you know who's attacking you. So in 1989, actually, Stoll, who is an academic, was the first person to talk about attribution with honeypot research. So Honeypot is a decoy computer system for trapping hackers or tracking unconventional or new hacking methods, uh, usually like sort of to attract operators uh, to send like spear phishing attachment. And then you can open them and try to do malware analysis or reverse engineering with this. So attribution usually is we talk about sort of advanced persistent threats, which are different types of groups. So the three main types of groups there are in cyber threat intelligence, although you can add a little bit more, but I will only talk about the three core groups, which are nation state actors, so state-sponsored actors, basically, cyber criminals, which are usually largely uh, financially focused, and then hacktivists, which are basically online activists. So before how attribution has been done largely uh, in, in the past, uh, there's been sort of like manual attribution, which is a very technical 
using, for instance, traceroute, contacting ICP, reverse engineering, looking at IP. Uh, there's also been like tra traceback techniques. And the big thing about attribution is we're looking at what we call IOCs, which are indicators of compromises. These, for example, are hashes, hashes related to files, hashes related to executable, a different name of executable, etc. So that is usually how we looked at all the data from an attack, and it's been largely very technical and sort of uh, looking, for instance, if we've seen this hash in this attack, have we seen it in the past and who has it been attributed to, etc. So, and you're going to ask me, like, what can you attribute, really? Well, you can attribute a single cyber attack. You can attribute a range of attacks, like campaigns, for instance. So, for instance, if you're seeing the same executable a few times targeting similar sectors, you can know perhaps this is a campaign linked to the same group. You can also specifically attribute a, a malware or tool, uh, especially custom tools or custom malware. And then with that, you can start building a network of things where everything is linked. And that's where attribution comes in. So when we're talking about IOCs, often like uh, we are talking about, for example, also like the different technical bits of an attack, like timestamps. Time so the, the inclusion of compilation time to an executable, executable file. Uh, strings, paths, metadata, uh, for example, the preferred language that you can see in metadata can be an indication of where the actor originates. The infrastructure and backend connections, so often I was talking about like command and control servers and the communication between an infected device and C2 servers controlled by an operator. Well, usually in a classic C2 channel, you use uh, domains or IP addresses to be able to communicate between those two. And sort of a lot of actors uh, reuse uh, those domains. Uh, so often with that, you can kind of connect attribution through that. And of course, uh, you can look also at malware um, when you're reverse engineering a malware, like code reuse, uh, password, different exploit that are used, et cetera. And uh, you can look even at a deeper sort of computer science where you're looking at binary and code uh, in terms of attribution. For instance, there is this company called Interzer, uh, which does genetic malware analysis technology, which I would recommend you guys check out. Um, and basically they automate sort of malware attribution through looking at sort of what code is being used. However, there is a lot, um, uh, like there is a lot to say about technical attribution and how that has a lot of limitations. Um, first of all, when you're studying cybersecurity, because the cyber threat landscape is so embedded within the geopolitical landscape, we cannot just stick to computer science and the technical analysis of malware. We really need to acknowledge those social political discourses. We need to see what country is hacking who and what sort of geopolitical tensions they are, because that usually will indicate a lot about attribution as well, because political context is very much embedded within cyber attribution. Countries also have different capabilities. Different APTs have different capabilities, different motivations. Um, so it's a very complicated landscape. Often what we have to think about, which my colleagues never uh, think about, and because I have a social science degree, I always talk about discourses all the time. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I tell them, like, often we come to the sexiest conclusion, you know, like in cyber, in, in attribution, it's happened where you're like, oh, it's the Russians. 
you know. And the other thing that we have to think about is the Western bias, because a lot of the sort of data that we have about malware, et cetera, it's from security vendors, security providers, um, as well as even big four firms like Deloitte, et cetera. But these are very much sort of covered and analyzed uh, by Western nations, especially the US. So for example, about like US capability or for instance, groups that are led by the USA, we don't know much. Why? Because the secure vendors are all American. So what do they care about? They care about Iran. They care about China. They care about Russia. They care about North Korea. And these are the main actors that we know loads about. Um, so also we have to keep this in mind. Also, there are some countries uh, that people just don't necessarily care about when they have a cyber capability. For example, like, let's look at Djibouti. I know that's a random country, but like, we don't know anything about the cyber threat landscape within Djibouti. They could have a cyber capability, but we don't know because again, uh, sort of what we're analyzing is so focused on Russia, North Korea, China, etc. That we're also like very much are looking at cybersecurity through like those Western um, lens. But um, now, are you saying then that sometimes attribution and the way that we are trying to attribute these uh, attacks is misguided in some cases, or is it like that we're is it just because we're overly focused on those cases you've described having this Western background and uh, mindset when it comes to an approach? I would say uh, when it comes to cyber attacks and you know APTs as well in general. Absolutely, I think. Uh... It's not necessarily misguided, but I think it's very influenced by what we know. Um, and sort of in some cases also, we don't know a lot about some countries. So it's easier to attribute something to Russia than look deeper into it. And sometimes also, I think there's been some attribution that have been sort of easily done. Um, sort of, for instance, if we're looking at uh, the uh, attacks uh, during uh, the South Korean Olympic Games, um, it turned out to be Russia, um, but actually like the first sort of conclusion that everybody um, did like was, oh, this is North Korea. Even South Korean government said that. Mm. Why? Because of the sort of geopolitical landscape between South Korea and North Korea. So often people kind of lock, love making those, those conclusions quite hastily because it kind of fits within their political agenda. So I think that's something that definitely needs to be talked about and that's not talked about at all. Um, but coming back to attribution in a more technical way as well, like what is, uh, like I've talked about sort of how discourses influence attribution, but there are also some issues within just keeping it technical because there is so much code reuse these days, like in code dumping and sort of also infrastructure sharing, especially on the cyber criminal underground. Well, it's very hard nowadays to attribute a malware to a single entity because people share tools, people reuse code, people even buy commodity malware, um, as well as there's a lot of tool leakage. For instance, I don't know if you remember uh, sort of the Shadow Brokers series of data leaks in 2016. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was a big one. And where basically the Equation Group, uh, which is an American group uh, linked to the NSA, uh, some of their tools were leaked, including, for instance, the exploit Eternal Blue, and double pulsar, which are very powerful um, exploits. And these were then leveraged in the WannaCry and NotPetya attacks afterwards, both led by North Korea and Russia respectively. Um, so these types of leaks as well have really lowered the threshold for uh, actors that are less capable. Uh, 
um, the collaboration also between different uh, threat actor groups makes it also very muddy for us to attribute like attacks and malware to a single group. For example, the Silence uh, Russian cyber criminal group learned a lot of tricks from the, their Karbanak uh, counterpart. Uh, there are malware also that are shared specifically within just a type of actor like Plug X, which is a very famous like rat that is commonly shared amongst Chinese espionage. Um, so this is why during my PhD, I'm arguing that a technical approach is not enough. Um, and sort of just looking at code reuse, code sort of similarities, that is not the way to do attribution. I'm a big believer that we need to look at attribution within the bigger picture. So look at behavior of uh, sort of APTs during an intrusion attack. This is what we sort of call in um, cybersecurity, TTPs, tactic, techniques, and procedures, which are the way that threat actor operates during the different sta states of an operation, an operation campaign. And sort of, you were saying just before during my bio that I specialize in the MITRE attack framework. The MITRE attack framework is a taxonomy of hundreds and hundreds of techniques during different phases of an intrusion. And I believe like during my PhD, what I'm doing is compiling profiles of behavioral profiles of APTs, what we know about like how they behave exactly on a system with specific techniques that are very technically uh, driven. So for example, if to establish persistence, they will do a scheduled task with their executable. So it's executed every minute. That's an example of a technique, for example. And I believe that if you're doing these types of profilings, these behavioral profiling of APTs, then we can better attribute uh, cyber attacks and cyber campaigns because we can look at it in a behavioral way, still looking at it technically, uh, but that way you kind of remove the uncertainty of code reuse, et cetera, because TTPs are very hard to sort of um, change as well during an attack uh, on like IOCs, for instance, like a C2 domain, you can kind of dump and, and just, you know, register a new one very easily. But if you're like a specific APT with an, a specific intent, a specific ability, those two things are, are pretty like sort of non-changing as well. Uh, then you will usually act relatively the same way because, for instance, if you're a nation stacked actor, what you will want to do is collect sensitive information from your target. And usually you will do it in the way that like you know how to do it using the specific malware you have at your disposal as well. And thus is why like this type of uh, sort of view of attribution, which is more behavioral, is, in my opinion, a lot better for attribution as a whole, rather than the technically driven one that we've done in the past. So that's what I'm proposing with my PhD, basically. Okay, there's a lot of things to unpack here. But ultimately, you're essentially, you're addressing, like a very solid problem that we have within attribution. And these limits that we have, as you've said, we have to very often, we have to look beyond there's uh, both the technical, but also uh, the discourse or the narrative, I would say, like, because there, there's a lot of mistakes that happen when attribution is false. Or I mm. would also say that, you know, in the event that we think that we suspect there, there's an imminent attack coming up. But actually, this opens up this other question that I had in mind, you know, false flag attacks, right? Absolutely. What? what what are these attacks? How are they 
related to ATPs and uh, what does it mean for national security? Uh, is it is it like we understand it as it as it sounds like false flag attack? What what, what is oh, this? False flag attacks is also a really great example to why there is problem within and limitations within attribution. So false flagging is making people believe that you did an attack by using similar techniques or similar infrastructures from other group. Um, so, for example, I was talking about the attacks on the South Korean 2018 Winter Olympics, uh, where this was called Operation Olympic Destroyer. And uh, the false flag evidence there also, uh, although people also jumped to conclusion because it was in South Korea, uh, was to basically um, sort of accuse North Korean threat actors because that's their usual modus operandi. But it turns out it was actually um, a Russian group. I think it was Fancy Bear. Um, that's what they're called. Uh, that actually enacted the attack. And they purposefully, uh, for example, targeted South Korea during a big event um, with similar techniques uh, that North Korean actors do to be able to sort of not for it to, to be obfuscated to not for it to not to bring back to them but then eventually it was and Russian actors are notorious for this like notorious they're really good at false flags uh, but they eventually always get found out uh, so uh, the National um, Cyber Security Center also reported in October 2019 uh, that basically the Russian group Turla uh, had compromised the infrastructure of an Iranian group called Oil Rig uh, so mm -hmm. And that actually lots of attacks uh, that had been sort of attributed to oil rig before. So the Iranian actor uh, was actually Turla that had um, done it. And what they did is so smart. They basically just compromised the C2 infrastructure of one of uh, the malware that uh, the Iranian group was using to be able to basically operate it of their own. And so what that led is like a few uh, tools that were believed to actually be Iranians were actually attributed back uh, to Russia. And sort of they did that to basically do false flags attack. Uh, and false flags attacks are often used because you don't want to be detected. Uh, often it's a larger political context. Maybe you want to target something, but you're like, oh, I don't want this to be traced back to me because that could create political tensions, for example. I think that's what Russia does it often. Um, so yeah, so these also types of attacks are very complicated um, and are so are definitely a limitations to attribution. But with my uh, research and the profiling that I've done and applying data-driven approaches to sort of the profiles of techniques that you make of APTs, well, my uh, methodology is I'm really happy to report actually working on detecting those false flags attacks. Um, so um, I'm, and I definitely want to write a paper in the future on false flags specifically and sort of how to uh, like detect false flag attacks. Man, I definitely like to read that because it's uh, <laughs> it, it does sound quite interesting. Would you say that out of these attacks, and especially when it involves national security, specifically because it, they don't really want to be discovered, is this anything close, even remotely close to what we understand as cyber terrorism? especially when it involves national security. I mean, I understand that very often terrorist groups, sometimes, they, you know, in conventional warfare, at least they do take responsibility. They do like to be, you know, to make them, their message heard because they obviously have a political 
gain an, ult an ultimate uh, political objective. But in this case, because it involves politics as well, and we are talking about national security as well, these false flag attacks, they don't really want to be the actors behind it. They want to remain hidden, mm. right? Mm -mm. So is this can can this actually be compared to cyber terrorism in any way? Uh, so we have to be very careful with the words we've used in cyber threat intelligence because I think we throw a lot of words like this, and I would say cyber terrorism is cyber attacks performed by terrorists, right? And um, I didn't include terrorists in my three main types of actors, but sometimes they are also a type of actor that we consider within cyber threat intelligence. We also consider, for instance, um, intruders as well, um, uh, sort of like internal, for instance, like in companies, uh, people who do sort of lone wolf intruder attack, uh, as well as like, so terrorists, then we can consider also like a corporate espionage as a type of attack, as a type of attacker as well, like sort of organizations uh, that are trying to sort of infiltrate each other and get usually like uh, data that would benefit them. Um, but terrorists, I'm not including them in my, when I'm talking about APTs, which are advanced persistent threats, in, in that definition, I'm considering APTs to be sophisticated actors and terrorists, let me tell you, they're terrible at cyber things, <laughs> absolutely terrible. At some point, ISIS uh, was kind of, when they released one of their versions of Dabik, like um, they did a whole thing about um, sort of cyber intrusions, et cetera, which kind of gave me hope mm. that maybe, you know, they had some capabilities, but <laughs> honestly, in the past few years, there is no real attack that's been like a cyber attack, sorry, that's been led by a terrorist groups. And I think the word cyber terrorism has kind of been thrown around to, to kind of uh, define other types of attacks. For instance, I've seen like ransomware operators that have targeted hospitals and people have called it cyber terrorism, but technically it's not, it's cyber criminals that are sort of engaging in that. Um, so for me, you have to be careful when you're using that types of word. And the most important thing to remember is terrorists um, have basically zero cyber capability. They're not considered very, um, very performant in that arena, at least. But here's hoping for the future if, you know, terrorists are listening to this podcast. <laughs> wow, that's, uh, you, you just said that we have to be careful with the words that we use. But I mean, that's interesting. And also you brought up as well, Dabiq, which uh, in case our listeners are wondering what Dabiq is, it's essentially the ISIS magazine. So you, we are essentially uh, spreading a lot of joy through this. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, this was a joke just for the, our listeners. To, this was absolutely just a joke. But um, I look forward to seeing how actually terrorism develops uh, with, you know, cybersecurity being such a big topical thing at the moment. And perhaps if they put more resources uh, within that. But I think so far, um, terrorists have put like their resources elsewhere in terms of attacks, not in the cyber domain. Yes, of course. And, all, and obviously, there's also a difference between terrorist groups and state sponsored groups who ha mm. do have uh, access to state funds and they do Absolutely. they do develop, you know, more sophisticated uh, techniques, uh, you know, entire organizations, essentially, uh, they, they are led to believe that they have e-militias like uh, Hezbollah, for example. Mm. So, that, you know, there's there's different organizations that out there that are uh, state sponsored. They do have those capabilities, but indeed uh, terrorist uh, cells or groups or whatever, they don't really, they, they, they have, they fundamentally lack in that Absolutely. area. And speaking of all this uh, conflict and warfare, here's another question. So there's a difference between 
the kind of war that takes place in the cyberspace and the more conventional warfare. So in interstate conflict, it's very clear, rather evident to actually see physically where a threat or an attack is coming from. Okay, And this is also linked, obviously, to attribution. When we explore the more traditional uh, type of warfare, we're talking about the visible attacks coming in from states or non-state actors. And when uh, we talk about a cyberspace, there's no clear attribution very often. And we do see growing and rather detailed attribution of certain state sponsor actors. But we, we haven't really discussed any of them. I mean, you, you, you have thrown a few names here, which is very interesting, but perhaps we cannot always be so sure as you've said. So you've obviously made this very good point about the geopolitical landscape having a very strong connection mm. to this. I'd like to build on a bit when it comes to this. And if you could bring in a couple of uh, additional cases, like, for example, one case study that I think on top of my head, which hasn't really been linked clearly to other cases uh, as of yet, is the uh, 2019 attack, or at least the tw- identified it back in 2019, because we still don't know for how long this was going on, uh, by Sea Turtle. And, I, you know, I always like how certain groups have very fancy names, like the Sea Turtle, which was uh, this attack that uh, took place in the, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Levant and, and other bits in uh, Europe and in the Americas. So essentially there was a large leak of different governmental departments, like ministries of uh, foreign affairs and ministries of defense, where... A man-in-the-middle attack was deployed to uh, essentially scramble uh, communications and misinform or, you know, uh, cause diplomatic upheaval and so on between uh, states. So can you think of any other cases like these uh, in, that we've seen recently? As I said before, especially when we're talking about nation-state groups, uh, the political landscape dictates who hacks who. So countries usually target each other based on the political climate. So, for example, if we're talking about Iran, most of their targeting is done within the Middle East, uh, MENA, but also a few Western countries. When it, so usually those, the, the nation state actors perform two types of attack, either political espionage or corporate espionage. So Chinese actors, for instance, are quite notorious for their corporate espionage because they're always looking at getting ahead with their economy. Uh, but then some actors, uh, for example, like um, like Russian actors are quite notorious for political espionage. We're trying to get sensitive information and often targeting Western nations, for example, which I think to you as an international relations expert, Petros, that doesn't surprise you. But these days, like, uh, there's only usually one actor that's a little bit different from the others. Like some North Korean actors actually target, although they're state sponsors, they target victims for money and for financial gain, uh, usually like the financial sector. Um, So this is known, for instance, as the Lazarus Group, which is a big umbrella, uh, which usually uh, specializes in targeting SWIFT systems within banks and has been very successful at that. Uh, but interestingly, this week, uh, that's why I'm excited to bring it up, uh, Iran, we've seen a different model operandi with Iran. Iran, who has mostly performed a lot of uh, political espionage attack, as well as some disruptive ones as well, especially against Saudi Arabia. Doesn't surprise you again. Um, they uh, they um, have started actually to, um, there's this ransomware campaign that's been linked to APT33, 
or refined kitten. Uh, also, when you were saying all these actors have really funny names, right? Uh, it's actually it's actually the security vendors that give them their names, and often actually it's a bit annoying because multiple like FireEye will call them a certain ways, and then CrowdStrike will call them another way. But CrowdStrike, uh, the security vendor, is the one that is uh, notorious for giving it names of animals. So. All the Chinese actors are pandas. All the Russian uh, actors are bears, for example. So it's quite interesting uh, uh, there and quite funny. Also, the geopolitical climate. I'm gonna say like escalating political tensions very much often correlates with uh, cyber attacks. So I'm gonna use an example that we saw this week. Actually, um, I don't know if you heard, but there was this massive DDoS attack that affected 200 Belgian organizations this week, including the federal parliament and the Brussels police. Um, so this was done because basically uh, the internet service provider Belnet fell victim to a large-scale DDoS attack, which again, uh, back to my previous point about supply chain compromise, if you target like the right target and then can affect lots of other uh, people. So if you target an ICP, an internet service provider, then all its customers will usually also be affected and sort of their website be made unavailable. And that included, for instance, the Belgian federal parliament, the Brussels police, the official website for the city of Brussels. So quite a lot of public sector uh, websites. And that actually, I think not a coincidence, correlated with the fact that in parliament at the moment in Belgium, there's a lot of talks about the Uyghur community um, sorry if I've min mispronounced that, uh, but including the testimony of a Uyghur concentration camp witness. Um, and although there's no attribution that has been made so far, uh, sort of our, um, our team has assessed that it's very likely to be a Chinese sponsored group because uh, these types of disruptive attacks also have been seen multiple times by Chinese group in the case of political events, they, ju they judge uh, against like sort of the state of China. So for example, they conducted disruptive uh, DDoS attacks in uh, 2019 against Telegram. You remember when the Hong Kong protests were happening? Of course, yes. So, um, so yeah, so this happened with nation states actor and the geopolitical landscape can also be very much uh, something that's important for hacktivists not so much for cyber criminals, but in the case of hacktivists, often political tensions are definitely the main sort of driver for hacktivist attacks. So for example, I'm going to take an example again this week because the cyber threat landscape is so amazing. Every week there's something that's happening. Um, so there is this uh, anonymous group. I'm sure you've heard of anonymous before, um, which is a very large sort of umbrella of, of different groups, uh, hacktivist group for different causes, but they've just launched a new campaign called Up Columbia. Not surprising again, because after the protest and activism that we've seen in Colombia at the moment, because of the situation due to increased taxes and sort of like the economic crisis uh, after COVID, uh, well, that has led hacktivists to kind of take an interest in that. And now they're launching lots of DDoS attack uh, data leaks attack, defacement attacks, which are their, the usual modus operandi for a hacktivist um, against sort of Colombian uh, government and military websites. So again, here we're seeing escalating political tensions definitely correlate with uh, the probability of more cyber attacks. This is exactly why I said at the very beginning of this podcast why it's such a fascinating yet uh, dangerous space uh, or you know realm to talk about when it comes to cyber cyberspace itself. Mm. Do you uh, so you does your team because you've said that your team has made a couple of uh, speculations here and there as to 
who this whom this attack is attributed to out of these recent cases do you publish that publicly this information or is it something that you constantly work on before you finalize and then you uh yeah no so how i work because i work in the consulting uh firm i usually work for clients uh so for this for one of my main clients i for instance have to track what's happening weekly on the cyber threat landscape and what's relevant to them and so I kind of compiled that. And uh, my main job is actually like not only to look for information and dig for data, may it be on the you know, open source data, deep and dark web, et cetera. But afterward is to make assessments. That's why cyber threat intelligence is interesting. So to make assessment on attribution, to make an assessment on how threatening it, threatening it is to a certain sector or a certain client. Uh, so, those, so that's how I tra translate kind of like uh, raw data to like intelligence mm -hmm. and this is useful because we also learn about intent and capability as well right mm, absolutely and uh, how does this happen through attribution so first we kind of have to understand what do we mean uh by intent and what do we mean by capability so intent relates to the objective of an apt um and sort of can be categorized within sort of the three broad ranges of actors again. So nation state actors, usually, I'm not saying all, because I gave you an example when it wasn't always the case, usually are there for espionage purposes. Cyber criminals are always there for financial gain. And hacktivists are usually disruptive and wanting to convey a specific political message. So that's usually their intent. Capability exists within a broad spectrum from highly advanced groups uh, capable of hacking complex system and building their own custom tools to sort of low end groups, which usually repurpose open source malware or even sometimes are incapable of using malware, but perform still like usually try, try to perform impactful or damaging attacks. And usually capability is going to correlate with the probability of success of an attack, if that makes sense. And in terms of the different abilities of, um, of different actors, of course, this is very debatable. I think within the community, people can basically debate this for hours. And what I've tried to do is develop sort of a metric system for capability, but it's still something that's, it's basically quantifying something that is relatively qualitative and also um, ever-changing in time. So it's difficult, but I would say hacktivists are usually actors that are not that performant. They usually don't even use malware. They mostly focus on defacement and DDoS attacks um, and are not considered to be very capable. Then in the middle, usually there are sort of nation state groups that are like, for instance, India uh, or Pakistan that are kind of like relatively sophisticated, but I would say at the cusp, not sophisticated as really high-end actors. Even Iran is in there, I would say. And then also cyber criminal groups, uh, which are sort of moderately uh, capable. And then at the higher end of the scale, there are very, very performant uh, organized criminal groups, usually that often even work like a business model. And then there are the very sophisticated um, sort of uh, nation state actors. So there are some, like for instance, Chinese actors that we know that are very relatively sophisticated. But in my eyes, the 5i nations um, are really probably the ones that operate the most sophisticated groups, except because again, of this Western bias, we don't know much about them. But for instance, I think the USA has incredible resources and capability in the cyberspace is just we remain a little bit of, uh, in the dark. And also the more sophisticated, the less easy it is to uh, detect an intrusion. And then we don't know anything about them because if you're 
super, super sophisticated, advanced and stealthy, then you will perform a cyber attack and then erase all your traces. And often what we know about the cyber threat landscape is that what we caught actors when they've left traces. So that probably says also something about capability there. Yeah, and uh, also I would say it also says a couple of things about limitation as well, doesn't it? Mm. Right, very exciting, very interesting. Uh, Just one final question though. How do you feel... I mean, if any at all, do you feel that data legislation has played uh, any part in providing more scrutiny over uh, cyber attacks? Oh, it absolutely had um, has done. Uh, so since especially the implementation of the EU's uh, GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, the sort of we've seen the media reports of data breaches, for instance, skyrocketing. We can remember, for instance, British Airways, Facebook, Ticketmaster, Cathay Pacific, all of them are were incredibly mediatized. And GDPR also is very sort of scrutinous to companies because if you don't follow GDPR, you can be issued a fine up to 20 million euros or 4% of your annual global turnover, whichever is higher. That's an enormous amount of, of fine. And sort of um, compliance-driven pieces have been relatively common occurrence in the media since then. I think companies feel more obliged to sort of make sure to have good security hygiene to avoid such data breaches. And it's also bringing some major changes on the management and transfer of data. And some people would say like, oh, perhaps since GDPR, actually, there's been more data breaches. I would disagree on that. I would say there was always a lot of data breaches and cyber attacks. It's just since GDPR, people have to report them within 72 hours or they get a fine. So I think that's definitely been something um, that's been influential. And I think GDPR has led also is a big pioneer in the data legislation like world where now a lot of other countries are ad- adopting sort of a similar ways of managing data. For instance, in Brazil, there's the Brazilian General Data Protection Law, LGDP, uh, which has established a regulatory framework for the usage and processing of personal data modeled on GDPR. Uh, But one of the things that I kind of wanted to highlight uh, as a sort of a conclusion, sort of looking at GDPR in a strategic cyber threat intelligence lens is that uh, GDPR, yes, it's put more compliance, it's put more scrutiny over data legislation, over data regulation, data sort of management, data processing for companies, but it's also in a way benefited cyber threat actors. And you might say, why? Well, because of this 72 hour window where you have to report a data breach and give like sort of information on that. Well, that's quite interesting because this can really benefit a cyber threat actor because often in 72 hours, you don't really necessarily have time to mitigate a full on attack. So that could also mean like a lot of actors uh, could see that as an opportunity to attack that specific uh, sort of company, especially if they didn't uh, kind of put on mitigation controls that were good enough. Then also because of mandatory reporting, which usually are quite dense and technically like sort of detailed, that can influence other actors in their techniques, tactics and procedure that they decide to, to deploy. As well, I think GDPR is pulled more scrutiny into third party sort of um, due diligence and where we're looking at solar wind supply chain compromise as well. I think companies have to be a lot more careful at their third party suppliers, which again puts more scrutiny on them. But that also can be really sort of good for threat actors uh, because they know there's more scrutiny. And finally, GDPR can be used also as part of extorting campaign or to apply pressure on actors because they know companies are in such 
uh, have to apply such due diligence and compliance uh, when it comes to data processing, et cetera. That's why, for instance, ransomware groups are performing double extortion. I believe also it's kind of led by the fact that they're influenced by all these new data regulation that has put more pressure on companies overall. Brilliant. Camille, at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for your contribution. There's actually a lot of more questions I'd love to ask, but we can't really cover this in just one episode. <laughs> Best of luck with the, the fantastic work that you're doing. It's very important that we're, you are doing such work these days, especially when it comes to all this rising uncertainty that we see online. And with COVID as well, we've seen an increase in these attacks. So it's keep up the good work. All the best with your research as well. And thank you so much. No, thank you so much, Petrus, for having me. And thank you so much for this wonderful initiative that is this podcast. It's really amazing. So yeah, thank you. And I hope that our listeners will hopefully have a better idea of uh, cyber threat intelligence after this podcast. 